Well, praise the Lord, we want to finish. <laughs> well, I don't suppose we'll ever be finished, but scriptures are inexhaustible. But we'll leave go so we don't just go on endlessly. Our study on the assembly. So I have two basic things I'd like to do this afternoon. Review some key points and a call to action. Right? We're not just interested in a lot of theory. So let us uh, let us go over. Whoops. Go over what we've been uh, looking at. The assembly. I mean, there's the things we didn't cover, you know, and, and if somebody with particular strong opinions or convictions or doctrinal insight or whatever on the subject, they could critique. You know, we didn't adequately treat the Lord's table, and some would believe in heavily regulating the Lord's table, thinking of some folks now that we knew decades ago and all of that. Um, they, I think, would make a doctrine. Well, they would assert, first of all, that Judas was not present at the Lord's Supper and therefore nobody that isn't... Um, perfectly walking with Christ, or at least according to their criteria, should be permitted to partake of communion. Therefore, the assembly to, to maintain the integrity of the Lord's Supper has to make sure, has to make sure that nobody that's not walking as they ought to be walking in all points has communion. That's, so this, how's that for a doctrine? Um, all I can say is I'm not there, at least not yet. I, the way it was demonstrated or, or communicated to me, I, I hope I never get there. Um, I mean, that's a long distance from what Paul was dealing with with the Corinthians, I think. So, there's lots, all that to say is there's lots more that we could say. Let's do some summary review. The assembly, first mention of uh, the assembly in Scripture. Who remembers that? We actually mentioned it and we reviewed it. We reviewed it. First, what's that? Passover. Passover, correct. Exodus chapter 12, right? Um, Passover. And the significance of Passover is, the word I'm looking for begins with an R, redemption. Right? That's the first mention in Scripture of the assembly. And it's interesting because when, think about it, how was the Passover, the first Passover, accomplished? That's too vague, right? You don't know what I'm thinking. We're using the word assembly. And a link to that is congregation of the Lord. To help us in our thinking... The first actual assembling of the congregation of the Lord to meet with God happened where? Mount Sinai. 
recorded for us in Exodus chapter, end of chapter 19 and then verse 20, we get the Ten Commandments. So, everybody was there at Sinai. It was an assembly. That was the second mention, really, I think. Well, it might be mentioned once more in Exodus 14, but I think that's the second mention. That was the first assembling of the people for meeting with God at Sinai. Now, what day was that? Hmm. I'm just trying to remember now. Uh, Moses had the tablets of stone, but he came down later, so that it was the tablets of stone that was the day I'm thinking of. So we have the, the Sinai meeting, but it wasn't the Passover. Right? Passover, was there an actual assembly on the Passover? This is the feature I'm trying to get. Yeah. There wasn't one big assembly as there was at Sinai. And yet it says the whole assembly shall um, kill the lamb. But it wasn't an assembly as we think about it. So, one of the things that we see in this first mention of assembly is that it supersedes the geographical. And it's all of the people of God, wherever they are. They were individuals. The assembly is made up of redeemed individuals. That's the key. Because it was the assembly even when they weren't assembled. And each house had to be redeemed. And those were the people that now assembled before God. You see how the scripture is teaching us. So that was it. That's, the, that's where our assembly comes from. The redeemed. And we looked at three, um, three features of that assembly there in Exodus 19 and 20. Three key features that we looked at. And if we want to put them in priority of sequence... The first feature there at Sinai now, when they were all assembled, was what? It's not that hard, even varying for what the teachers think and what the students think. The key feature of that assembly at Sinai, presence of God. See, it's not so hard. You're thinking, I was thinking that, I should have said that. Flashbacks to the classroom, right? The second was the word of God. And then the third feature implied is uh, redemption. Remembering your redemption. What's the first commandment? Before the first commandment, let's look at it. Let's do Exodus 20. Right before. Forget your. uh, I think I want to try and talk to our landlord about removing this unhandy piece of wood here. That would make it usable for you, wouldn't it? And maybe even this distraction here. So I should, uh, should ask him about that. Exodus chapter 20. Look at this key passage here. Now, we need to skate fairly quickly here. The Lord and God spake all these words, that's verse 1, saying, verse 2, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he did that by sparing their lives when Egypt was judged. He did that through the Passover. So there is a remembrance of redemption. Those are your key three features. Because that's the first thing God spoke to them. God spake these words saying, I redeemed you. All right, so we have 
the presence of God, the word of God, and the remembrance of redemption. Those are three key features of the first assembly. The scriptures are teaching us. Then the Lord instituted three feasts in sequence. Already mentioned particularly one, made a passing reference to the first feast that was uh, mentioned there. Passover, the second feast. Passover, right? One feast, eight days. Second feast. I mentioned it, Pentecost, yeah. And the third feast, we haven't talked about it. There are three feasts. Remember the Lord said, three times in the year shall all your males appear before me. It's the Old Testament. Tabernacles. So, we have three features, three feasts. Passover, redemption. Pentecost is regeneration, the word of God. And tabernacles is resurrection. Redemption, regeneration, resurrection. This is uh, the Lord Jesus redeemed us on uh, the Passover. The Lord Jesus poured out the Holy Ghost on Pentecost. And you can forgive me for thinking that he's going to come back at tabernacles. Got three feasts, and so far his primary interactions with humanity have been on two of those feasts. I'm thinking his third and final will be on the third one at the last trump. What's tabernacles? The blowing of trumpets. But anyhow, so there it is. That's a bit of eschatology, my speculations. It's just a matter of which year is it. So every year is it going to be this time? Uh, <clears throat> so. Um, Passover was redemption. Pentecost, the word of God was given. Right? So Moses came down with the two tables of stone, with the um, commandments written on them, and the people were committing idolatry. Moses flung them down in a rage. Well, rage is not the right word. In great anger, righteous anger at their wickedness, 3,000 souls died on the day uh, of Pentecost. The first day of Pentecost, 3,000 died. The letter killeth, quite literally. Now on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, 3,000 lived. They were born again. Right? It's regeneration. The word of God brings regeneration. Born of water and the spirit. The word and the spirit. Washing of the water of the word. And tabernacles. So, Passover is redemption. Pentecost has to do with the word of God. And tabernacles um, is twofold. Godly living. And... Uh, when they are put, when the feasts are described in the Old Testament, um, they're described primarily two ways. One is ceremonially, Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles. And the other is agriculturally, right? So you have first fruits, which would be Passover, and tabernacles would be ingathering at the year's end, right? So they're both pictures um, <clears throat> of... Uh, of what God is, is doing. So he assembled three times. The reason we're mentioning these feasts, three times they were, they were supposed to appear before the Lord in the year. And my, my belief would be, my opinion would be, that that is one threefold 
basis of church meeting. Remember the, the Lord's death, have the word of God, and um, living as strangers and pilgrims looking for the blessed hope, that the, the whole thing's encapsulated. Paul wrote this um, to the Corinthians, I believe. Uh, Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wicked, wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. Right? Uh, the feast. And we know from his writing in Galatians and Colossians that he's not meaning that the church had to follow the calendar feast of the, uh, the Jews. He's talking about the spiritual feast. It's one feast that we're keeping all the time. And that's how I would understand the, uh, the spiritual significance of those Old Testament uh, feasts. So, assembly is based on redemption. Three key features of, of assembly is the presence of God, the word of God, and uh, rem- remembrance of that same redemption. They were portrayed under three different feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, here's a question, and we'll just get answers from the congregation. Were they the only times that the Old Testament church, the Jewish church, assembled before God? So you had the three feasts that were set. Did anything else ever come up through the Old Testament history where the people assembled before God? So, I was a little bit thinking, but this is not a trick question. I'm trying not to ask trick questions. Just want to get us to think. There was a Day of Atonement, um, and there was Rosh Hashanah. But but remember, he said three times shall all your males appear before me. So that's what we're thinking of that they would have been included in that. So, but did it happen where God's people gathered to seek the Lord as? A people any other times. Ezra, so there was one that was rebuilding in the temple. Are there others? Hint, yes. Let's name them then. Let's think of some. What kind of thing would happen that caused all of the people to assemble? War. War. Threat. Attack. So um, you had Hezekiah with Rabshaki and all of those guys. You had Jehoshaphat. Uh, <clears throat> so war. What else? Let's go further back. So um, with Hezekiah, we're getting near the end of the kingdom. Um, and then with, uh, with, sorry, with Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah is a bit further up. That's the days of Isaiah. Let's go before the kings. Uh, like which? Benjamin. Benjamin, yeah. So you had problems in the nation, right, to deal with sin at a national level. Everybody got together. We could enlarge the list. The point simply being is that there was assembly as needed, but these were assemblies as mandated. Right? So there's those that arose out of necessity, and they were good and right to do, but there were those that were mandated. And what we're doing is, I remember, the Old Testament wasn't, the Old Testament to the apostles. They were the scriptures. And when I say that, I mean there is once where it's referred to as the reading of the Old Testament. But to the apostles, 
They expounded what we call the Old Testament to create what we call the New Testament. So people say, oh, that's Old Testament. Um, need to be very careful what they're getting at. The truths of the New Covenant are here in the Scriptures. What, uh, what the apostles call the Scriptures, what we commonly call the, um, the Old Testament. So we're looking at this as a basis, as God's indication for what the New Testament assembly would look like because that's what the apostles did. They didn't just make it up. They had revelation, but the revelation was the unveiling of what was done in the scriptures. We've had um, the threat of war. We've had judgment. And we've got two of those, right, with um, uh, Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. We've got the um, revival of the temple. So we've got revival assembly. We've got uh, calamity. We've got judgment, sin in the camp. Any others? Okay, so controversial practice. They mix marriages and what to do about it. By the way, that sheds some light on 1 Corinthians 7. I'll just put that one out there for free. Right? They were commanded on the Old Testament to divorce unbelieving wives. And so Paul had to address that in 1 Corinthians 7. Because that would have been their expectation. Now what do we do? We've got to divorce our wives? He's saying, okay, no, no, you stay with them. But um, uh, it's good to think of the scriptures as a whole, right? Not just in isolation. Dealing with issues. Do we see these kinds of things in the New Testament? Let's keep that in our thought. And uh, one of the things we identified in our discussions, um, common features of the prescribed or the, the, the mandated um, assemblies. There were clear instructions, thinking of that first one on, on, uh, at Sinai. Clear instructions, don't touch the mountain. There were boundaries, you know, on to touch. Um, they met with God. There were, so there were clear instructions. There were consequences for breaking the rules. I don't like that term, breaking the rules, but... That's what they were. For ignoring, how about for ignoring instructions? There were severe consequences for ignoring instructions. There were physical symbols or signs. There was a manifest presence of God. There was God speaking and the inspired speaking for God of Moses. And, before, and who was meeting there? God and, this is an easy question, easy answer. His people. And they were redeemed people. What else were they? Hint, they had been told to do it themselves. Sanctified. This is key. And this, I mean, I'm, I'm re rebuked uh, as I consider these things in terms of, hmm. These are to be common, and you see this repeatedly, these are common features. These people were sanctified. What do I mean by that? I don't just mean they weren't in sin. They had prepared themselves attitudinally, practically, with a conscious focus that we're going to meet with God. That preparation was three days in length. I mean, Sinai was pretty dramatic. But the principle we are deriving is that they governed their whole lives 
their domestic life. Keep, you know, you've got to keep some distance from your wives even. We don't need to go into what that signifies and so on right now. But for us it symbolizes that they regulated their entire domestic life in anticipation of going to meeting. They approached meeting not as a, oh, look at the time, hurry up, let's go, let's go. Can you see why as I reflect on these things I would feel rebuked? Can you see that? So I'm not having a go at anybody. I'm sharing with you as I've soberly contemplated the word of God and judge my own conduct in light of the word of God. And I invite my brethren to do the same. There was a time, I was reflecting, hmm, you know, you think of first love and all that. There was a time, I think, if I had been asked, I was a young man, I didn't have a family, but still, do the first works. If I had been asked at any time to preach, I was always ready at every meeting to share the word of God. I was prepared. And I've let some of that slip. Um, Not that I couldn't have a word, but it's the attitude, the preparation, the focus. I'll say this now, we'll, we'll, we'll come to this at the end. If we want revival, if we want to experience as a congregation the manifest presence of God, how can we have any hope of that if we don't approach meeting with that same level of preparation? of heart, of mind, of intention. Does that make sense, brother? What we see here? When Solomon dedicated the temple, when David brought the ark, um, you know, to, to where he was living, all of these things. In fact, the reason Uzzah perished was a lack of preparation. Oh, let's bring the ark, you know, some bright ideas. Oh, we'll get an ox cart and, and let's get it moving. Let's do it quick. Ox cart, you know, it's heavy and it'll go quick. Ox is strong, bright ideas. Oh, oh it's shaken. Put forth the hand. Human bright ideas in the work of God have disastrous consequences. And fear, oh, that failed. Fear to do anything. What did David do? He went and he read his Bible is what he And he realized and he consulted with the priest. And then they did it properly and it went well. It was much slower. Because the priests are walking. And he slowed it down even more by offering sacrifices all along the way. But what a difference it made. There was preparation. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple so that the priests couldn't stand to minister, there was preparation. Everybody was sanctified, attentive, and prepared. Anyway, good This is, in in preparing for for our meeting, this is the thing that stuck, one of the things that really stuck out to me again. uh, So, I'll share while we're, well, call to action at the end. We'll we'll go over that. Prerequisite for assembly, right? Preparation, consecration, sanctification, reverence, and godly fear. So, these are some features. Uh, So, that's the Old Testament. That's what we've covered all of this, right? We're just reviewing. Church assembly. What we're looking at when we think of comparing to the three feasts and the assembling of people is the regular meeting of the whole church, right? I would suggest or submit that um, 
the regular meeting of the whole church is the New Testament fulfillment of those three feasts. And it has typical features and elements. We looked at them in a number of scriptures. The first one I think we looked at, although, you know, arguably this is not in sequence, was Acts chapter 20, verses 6 to 11. We noticed something. You remember that was um, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Paul preached a long time. A young brother fell out of the window. Uh, Sleeping has deadly results. Sleeping during meeting. Uh, Died. Um, God did a miracle through Paul. He was raised back up to life. And uh, they, they had communion. Then Paul carried on preaching. We observed collectively some features. One, that the first day of the week reads as if this was normal. That they habitually met the first day of the week. Um, that communion was what they, regu- they regularly remember the Lord's death on the first day of the week. We noticed that there was a message, a long message. That the message came before the breaking of bread. We noticed that there was no, oh, I noticed anyway, I don't remember if we discussed this one. There was no specified theme. I would submit, based on what Paul has said elsewhere, it was most likely some theme related to the kingdom of God and the whole counsel of God. We observed together that miracles happened, but they were not the focus of the meeting. They were only to meet a real need. So that's one of the things we noticed. These are um, features or elements of a church meeting. First day of the week is a message, communion, communion. Uh, the theme is not restricted only to the Lord's Supper and if there were any miracles they were not the focus of the meeting we also looked at 1 Corinthians 11 and we saw two things that pertain to meeting one one was Matthew 1 Corinthians 11 now I'm not good at chapter and reference so I don't blame you if you're not either Head covering. What's the other one? Communion. So, two subjects. The covering of women and the uncovering of men. So we're thinking here today where we have still a lot of Christian influence in tradition. Right? So for hundreds of years, it has been bad manners for men to wear hats in church. In fact, I was raised it was bad manners to wear a hat indoors. These things come into the culture. I remember as a boy in Jamaica that it was very common. I think most of the women at the Catholic Church covered their heads for meeting. Did someone just say what to that question? Sorry, that sounded like one of my kids. Yeah, I explain that as well when you think about it. It was common uh, during the the... Revivals under Charles Finney, women wore these hats to church. And they became vain about it. You know, the hats became not a covering but a decoration. And men don't wear anything on their heads. This is today. But it wasn't that in the New Testament. In the New Testament times. Men would be in the habit of wearing a covering for worship. Um, As far as I'm aware, the Jews... Moses put a veil over his face to teach, right? So he covered his head to teach. 
The priests had um, a bonnet or turban. <clears throat> so the prayer shawl that Jews have, and they, they wear their hats and so on, they would be following a tradition where Elijah, he put a mantle, he wrapped his mantle around his face to enter into the presence of God. It was normal for Jews to cover their heads to minister, men. Romans, historians tell us, used to cover their heads to worship the gods. Um, in India, uh, I mean, the Sikhs came about later from the Hindus. There was some split there with the gurus. I don't know their, their uh, history when it was, except that it's, it's centuries old. Sikh men, they, they cover, they have long hair. They don't cut their hair and they wrap it up in a turban. Long hair with a head covering as part of their worship. Muslim men cover their heads to worship, right? It's a unique feature of Christianity that your head must be uncovered as a man in worship. So this is first of all a commandment to men. It's first of all a struggle, if you're going to struggle, for men. Because the men were accustomed not to wearing a head covering except to worship. Unless they're in the Arabian desert. Uh, feminists take this as an objection of front and the hair. But the Roman man was accustomed to worshipping with his head covered. There are differing accounts on the Jews. Uh, whether they did or it was invented 3rd century. But they have a biblical tradition of men covering to minister. It was always there for the Muslims. Um, and the Sikhs. That's a lot of people. It's a huge percentage of the population where men were in the habit of covering their heads to worship. And the apostle cuts across all that and says no. So it's a cross to men, except those that have been conditioned by a Christianized culture. Now women who were accustomed to covering their heads just to go out of their doors at the time of the apostles. The, the Roman um, matron, was an extremely modest woman. She might have been an idolater and a pagan, but she would have been normally a very modest woman. Her, her feet would have been covered, except when she stepped forward, you'd see the front half of it, her garment covered to the ground, she, and her, her head covering would probably come down to her waist. This was just modesty. The Jewish women, likewise, and the, the, in fact the Semitic peoples, if they were decent at all, they were very well, very modest, and their head covering was just part of modesty. That's normative. And so what we would deduce is that in the assembly, they were taking occasion for Paul saying there's neither male nor female, and also uncovering their heads like the men. And Paul's telling them, put your head covering back on. You're supposed, you need to, whatever you're doing outside of meeting, you've got to have it on in meeting. <laughs> it has been inverted in... 20th century, now 21st century, uh, feminism to make it look like the head covering thing was picking on women and you know, giving men a free pass. But actually it was um, a greater trial to men and a reproof to women who were doing that which was not natural to them, historically. I think evidence is there. So that's just uh, uh, by the by as we look at that. But this is in the assembly. How to conduct ourselves in the assembly. Why should men uncover their heads? Give a different question. What is another term for head covering? 
Another word, synonym, begins with V. Veil. What happened when Christ cried, it is finished? Veil was removed. The glory of God was unveiled. And so, these are all symbols. The man is to uncover his head as a proclamation that Christ is the unveiled glory of God. And the woman is covering her head to signify that no flesh shall glory in his presence. It's a sign of authority. The church is under Christ and all of those things. Um, If a woman's hair is a glory to her, it's not the only glory, then the glory, and the woman is the glory of man, then that glory needs to be covered in the assembly. And um, so she's proclaiming uh, the church's subjection to Christ and man's glory is being covered that no flesh should glory in his presence. So these are symbols in the assembly. That's why it's really important that men do not cover their heads in the assembly. The women's do. So these baseball caps that have become the vogue and um, we're with it. We're, we're, I mean, not our congregation, but modern North American Christianity. I remember, remember your brother and sister-in-law complaining about the young youth pastor with his baseball cap on backwards for communion. You know, you don't remember that. Yeah, you've got this kind of thing going on. Baseball caps in church because you know God's not religious. Sup, dude. You know. Um, Reverence is still a thing. And godly fear is still a thing. And that's what it's, it's about. So, no, you don't, um, being all things to all men does not uh, include setting aside the uh, commands of God. <clears throat> so, we had those two subjects. The, the um, uncovering of men, the covering of women... And the Lord's Supper. And the whole church was together. When you come together into one place, Paul said about the Lord's Supper. So, assembly. We're building here. Matthew 26 we looked at. There was hymn singing specifically mentioned there. And there was self-examination. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? We link that to 1 Corinthians 11. Um... Examine yourself. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat, right? Uh, this has troubled Christians, and praise God for people with sensitive conscience. You know, think, oh, I failed here, I failed there. And I'm not one to encourage careless living at all. But the scriptures indicate that the thing they were examining themselves is whether they were committed to loving the Lord and his people or being a traitor and a turncoat. That was really what was on offer. They had just been carnal and were about to be carnal again by competing for who was going to be number one in the kingdom, one and two. That's not okay. That's carnal. But it wasn't a criterion that caused the Lord to reject them from his table. He'll deal with their proud hearts. He'll fix them. The communion table is not for perfect people it's for people being perfect it's for people who are true lovers of the lord jesus and lovers of his church right remember that point was brought out um 
in despising the church of God. This was what was wrong with them eating so much and drinking and despise, despise the church of God. This is what they were being judged for. Not discerning the Lord's body. So uh, that's really on test. Do you love the Lord Jesus, notwithstanding your shortcomings? And do you love his people? Examine yourself and so eat. Yes, Lord, notwithstanding my failings, I love you and I love your church. Then eat, because that's what this is, the redeemed. It's the supper of the redeemed of the Lord. That's what, when we have the communion here. So we identified those things. Remember, we're just reviewing, jogging our memories. We looked at Hebrews 12, the spiritual nature of the assembly, where we have that interpretation of, um, of uh, <clears throat> what happened at Sinai. Let's look at some of the other things that we uh, noted from the assembly. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy, there was prayer. I exhort, first of all, prayer, supplication, intercession, giving of thanks. Be made for all men, for kings. Talked about the word of God while we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the scripture. I've looked at some of them. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, sorry, I've got pages here and there and everywhere. All right. All right. Church meeting. We've looked at old and new. We're going to, we, I don't have them in perfect order, so bear with me on that. Um, the most significant feature of the Old Testament church meeting was, we just talked about it. There were three features. Most significant was? Friends of God. Therefore, the most significant feature of a New Testament church meeting is? God's presence. Uh, second? The Word of God. And the third? Remembering the Lord's death. Um, call to action I have that somewhere oh yes what I would entreat us to do I'm going to go back and forth because I, I can't just leave it all to the end um, currently our practice has been to have the Lord's Supper once a month I've heard that some Anabaptist groups have once or twice a year some Christian congregations have the Lord's Supper every week in my reading of scripture, the every week scene is, is what the first church did. Uh, and what I would entreat is that everyone would search the scriptures to see if that's the case. I mean, we, why, do we, why do we have the Lord's Supper as a congregation once a month? I'm going to give you the answer. Just think about it. Why do we do it once a month? Because that's been our practice. That's the only reason we made it up. Is there a different reason? Is there a scripture that would tell us it's once a month? 
So there's, there's a line of thinking. Well, the Lord doesn't specify. He says, this do you as often as you do it in remembrance of me. So you can do it as often. You know, it's up to you. Well, okay, let's follow that line of reasoning a little bit. As often as you express your love to me, I want you to uh, do it with joy. All right? So say that to one of my children, or my wife could say that to me. And I go away and think, well, she didn't tell me how often. Oh, no, let, let, me, go to, let me do it a little better. Something a little more realistic. Dear, as often as you, tell, as often as you want to show your love for me, Please give me a bouquet of flowers. Now, this is a bit funny, right? Because don't judge me based on that or you'll excommunicate me. But, uh, but let's just go with that. As often as you want to, whenever you want to express to me that you love me, please give me a bouquet of flowers. She never said that to me, by the way, so I'm off the hook. But if she did, and I go in, I think, hmm, well, she just said as often as I do it, give her flowers. But she didn't tell me how often, so I'll do it once a year. What would you men think of me as a loving husband? How would I be doing? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're just saying if. Remember the hypothetical. Remember the hypothetical. As is the father, so is the son, you know. He gives his wife flowers even less than I do. But my wife has never said that's the only way. I've got other options and I use them really well. But if that was the criterion... As often as you express your love to me, give me a bouquet of flowers. And I decided, well, she didn't say how often, so it's up to me, so I'll do it once a year. Would that be love? Let's make it, let's bring it a little easier. As often as you express your love for me, give me a kiss on the cheek. Right? She didn't say how often. I don't like kissing, it's kind of gross, so once a year. Would you be convinced that I loved my wife? You, you see where I'm going with this. Well, she didn't say off. So convenience and all that we got on the calendar, once a month. I don't mean to slag anybody, but I'm pointing out that if, remember, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Is that not based on love for Christ? Is there any suggestion that the Lord is saying, now don't do it too often, because that would just be wrong. Is there any hint of that in the scripture? I'm just sharing how I think, brethren, um, on this as I read the scripture. It seems that the direction, the scripture's point, is that the New Testament apostolic church remembered the Lord's death with breaking of bread Every Lord's Day, what we call a Sunday. That's how scriptures seem to me. And what I would entreat is that everyone would search the scriptures to see if that is actually the case. Because I believe that if a church makes decisions, the church should make decisions unanimously, and they should make it based on the scriptures and the Spirit of God, not on the dictates of the leadership. Brethren, is that reasonable? That as a church we do things based on everybody knowing the word of God and having that conviction.
and we don't just plow ahead haphazard. So that's one of the calls to action, is to search the scriptures about the Lord's Supper to see if we, what we're doing now is what the Word of God says, or should we be doing it weekly? Right, note to self, because I am entreating everyone in the congregation, within their capacity, you know. I mean, your four-year-old's not going to be doing that. Maybe all the baptized, uh, all the baptized. We just saw it off there, at the minimum, but if you want to search on that. Please make a note to self, and... Spread the word to those who are not here. That's one call to action in terms of the assembly. Because we've talked about gifts and, and how we're going to go there and so. All right. Uh, we're reviewing still. Um, most significant feature is the presence of God. It's the most significant feature of church assembly. How was the presence of God manifest in the, church, in the first assembly of the Old Testament Jewish church? How was the God's presence manifested? Cloud. Cloud. Anything else? Pillar of fire. They had that all along, right? Pillar of fire by, by night, pillar of smoke or cloud by day. So they had the cloud... The sound of a trumpet. All right, well, let's turn. Since our memories and, and the, the, the food's setting in, the sleepies and the coffee's not. Uh, Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy, please. We can look at that. What passage in Deuteronomy are we looking at? Um, Deuteronomy chapters 9 and 10. We could have just looked at Exodus there, but look, look at the, the key. Deuteronomy 9, verse 10. And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God, and on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. Right? So he, he's saying in the day of the assembly... The Lord spoke all these words, and later I gave you two tables of stones. God spake with you in the mount, out of the midst of the fire, in the day of the assembly. Deuteronomy 10, verses 1 to 4. At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come unto me in the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first and went up into the mount having the two tables in mine hand. And he wrote on the tables according to the first writing the ten commandments which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. There was thunderings, there was lightning, there was earthquake, there was cloud, the sound of a trumpet. And yet Moses focuses on the fact there was fire. God spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. The rest was ornamental. They were extras. Our God is a consuming fire. That was a physical manifestation. 
We know about there was a cloud that filled the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple. New Testament. All right? So that's how when God's, when God's presence was manifested in the Old Testament, there were dramatic physical signs and manifestations. Did that happen in the New Testament church? Yeah, so once, right? There were tongues of fire. There was a sound like as of a rushing mighty wind. Notice it doesn't say there was a rushing mighty wind. Right, so some people think they're like, and the hair like, you know. It says there was a sound like a rushing mighty wind. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. So far as we know, that was once. Another time at a prayer meeting, the place was shaken. So sometimes there were physical manifestations. We shouldn't think they were all the time. But what happened? Okay, so they spoke with tongues and it was anointed preaching. The word of God was delivered in power. But everyone spoke with tongues, everyone prophesied. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul said to them, If there come into your assembly one unlearned and one, un, uh, one unbelieving or unlearned, and all prophesy, the secrets of his heart are made manifest, he will fall down on his face and worship God and confess that God is in you of a truth. The manifestation, okay, so there was the presence of God, there was the manifestation of the presence of God. And those are not, um, they don't always go together. I mean, the manifestation always goes with the presence, but the presence doesn't always go with the manifestation. Hmm. I've said that exactly backwards. So. The presence of God is always there when God is manifest. But when God is there, he doesn't always manifest himself. The proof of that is the prophecy that God gave. I'm thinking it's Haggai now. As I covenanted with you, when I brought you out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. He was afflicted in all their affliction. God went captive into Babylon with his people. He was always among them. But most often because of their unfaithfulness, not manifest. That lack of manifestation in large part was a result in Israel failing to be a light unto the nations. So we have a chain reaction. Israel was unfaithful, therefore God was not manifest, therefore the heathen were not converted and saved. All of this is challenging. Like we can either embrace reality or we can pretend. The Christian church needs, the, God is covenanted. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. But he needs to be manifested. And not by, you know, cloud filling this auditorium or this chapel. Or, you know, some of the um, rare things that we've read about in revival or in church history. In the book of Acts, the place was shaken. I hope that doesn't happen here because it's precarious enough as it is, right? We're looking at that wall, you know, I can just try and explain that to the landlord. What were you doing in there? If this place was shaken, we'd lose some things. 
But the manifestation of God in the church is through his people. And that is what Christian churches ought to be seeking for, earnestly. And the building is seated there in these luxurious pews. <laughs> Lively stones. And so, <clears throat> this is what we are wanting to seek, is the manifest, the manifestation of the God who, by his covenant, is always with you. We want his manifest. His, the manifestation of God is the varying gifts of the Spirit of God being actuated in all of the people of God. Each according to his will and according to his, um, his distribution. To everyone is given grace. So, when you and I are praying for revival in our congregation, we also need to be embracing personal responsibility. So we'll, we'll, come, we'll, come back, uh, we'll come back to that as we look at our call to action. <clears throat> Remember, the most significant feature is the presence of God. That's the core essence of church assembly. So there was worship. Um, and if you look at Solomon's temple... It was after there had been extravagant worship that the presence of God was manifest. Uh, we noted in former times it was unique to the assembly. Moses had this presence wherever, but in terms of the assembly, it was unique there. All right, so, yeah. We read this. Um, and we'll read it again because we're summarizing on a former lesson, I think a second one. There is a particular manifestation of the presence of God when God's people sanctify themselves and assemble together that is greater than when they're alone. Is that biblical? That's the examples we have in Old and New Testaments. Uh, that gives us some, um, some emphasis on the importance of church meeting. Consecration, sanctification, preparation, an earnest desire to meet with God. So, <clears throat> if under the old covenant, what did Paul say comparing the old and the new? The ministration of, he's referring to the old covenant, the ministration of death had glory. How much more does the ministration of life have glory, right? Okay, so follow, follow Paul then. If they were that earnest and prepared and consecrated to gather in the assembly under the ministration of death, what ought to be our preparation and attitude when we assemble unto life? Is that not consistent with the reasoning of the apostle? You can see, I, yeah, so I, I, I come away and think, I, I have some changes to make. I have made some, but I have more changes to make. If I want to see God move in ways that he is not currently moving in our midst, I have some changes to make. 
And I would, I would submit that probably I'm not the only one. That um, the mad scramble just to try and get to meeting without being too terribly late is not the stuff of which revivals are made. Although I would like to give uh, a bit of a pass to nursing mums. Just so nobody gets a backpack of guilt on their backs. I know some mums are really together and uh, we struggled a bit more, remember? We even sideways rebuked in a, in a meeting, church meeting. Everyone's there. We're discussing being on time and we were sideways jabbed as not having a good reason for being late because a family with more children than us were on time and all the children were immaculate. Everything was done except naming us personally. I was so demoralized. The next meeting, we were late again. So I, I just sat in the parking lot. Just, my wife went in because she's tougher than me. And I sat there. So my sweet wife sent the pastor out to get me. Martin's sitting in the car. He's not coming in. He's too embarrassed because we're late. Go get him. <laughs> oh, I've got loads of compassion for everybody. Yeah, I, I, probably not a mistake I haven't made. So, yeah. You won't find me condemning you. But the fact is, brethren, uh, we do need to... Some of you can't imagine that, right? But, uh, yeah, I was young once. Um, if we want things different, we have to be different. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. If we want God to be really looking forward to meeting with us, we have to be really looking forward to meeting with him we want God to move we have to move so uh, call to action a change of life lifestyle attitude and approach to church meeting if we want revival brethren is that self evident from scripture and reason that um, not the straining futile but just a heart. And I think you prayed it or you read it or quoted it. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. I know a young man, although he's not as young as younger young men, who had one thing on his mind and boy did he make sure he obtained the prize. Oh, he wrote handwritten letters on parchment. He flew across the country he wooed and he won and he got the prize. He put effort. He didn't just get up early to go to meeting. He got up early to go across the country to make sure he could find him the wife of his dreams. And he won. He was successful. And I dare say if we approach revival and church meeting like that, we will win. I'm suspicious that if he had taken the attitude and the approach anyway, whatever he meant in his heart, if he had approached it the way so many of us approach meeting, he would not be getting married next Saturday. Just, I'm being cryptic, you know. You'll never know who I'm talking about or what I'm getting at, but just use your imagination. wonder if he listens to this recording, you know. What do you think of that? So anyway, I think he'd say amen. And it should inspire us all with hope. God's not less than that. Yeah. 
consecration, sanctification, preparation, an earnest desire to meet with God. Parameters, okay, so uh, let's, let's go back to last time because we're going to run out of time. Where do I have that paper? I've got so many papers I can't find them. And this is one I really wanted. How? It's easier just to wing it, not to have paper to deal with. But there is. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Learn to laugh at yourself because then you'll have lots of company. Everybody else is laughing at you as well. Ah, here it is. It's on the back of this one. We identified last session that uh, in the early days they met daily in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. The meeting was on the Lord's Day. They had prayer, and then types of meetings. They had prayer meetings. They had doctrinal meetings. They had missionary reports, baptismal service, farewell service. We didn't complete the list. Uh, further, we didn't look at, they had feasts of charity, right? Which is something to look at another time, but that could be practical outreach. The feasts of charity, the poor, the halt, the maimed would come and partake of that which was put on by the church. That was a much bigger deal. Uh, the economy was such that the poor were poor. The middle class were lower class. Soldiers were paid so poorly that they gambled for the clothes of a condemned poor man. That's how precious cloth was and all that. The rich were really rich and the not rich were really not rich. Uh, so putting on a feast was a big deal. It was, it was costly. People didn't have, the church wasn't wealthy. And, uh, and so people that were struggling and so on would come and benefit from something that would normally be only for the rich and well-to-do. And they would call those that couldn't repay and they would minister to, to whomever. Feasts of charity, that's how I understand it. So that was a practical outreach. I'm not saying we should start a soup kitchen. We can deal with that another time. Of all the different types of meeting, prayer meeting, doctrinal meeting, missionary, the times when the church got together, we're talking about church discipline, right? All of those things where the Christian people gathered together, whether in large groups or smaller groups. It covers a wide range, right, brother? What kind of gathering did they not have that's recorded in Scripture? At least it's not recorded anywhere in Scripture. Fun and games. And that is the most common reason for Christians in North America to gather. It's fun and games. Just, we're just observing the truth together. Now, well, that doesn't mean it never happened. Granted, it means, though, that it was very disproportionately or proportionately minor compared to all the else. If it was something that God thought was necessary for us to do, it would be in the word. Isn't that right? Churches need to have regular socials. That would be in the Bible if it was a necessity. We've got evidence of prayer meetings more than once. Uh, doctrinal meetings. Paul gives instruction when you're all together. You've got to discipline this one. Um, it tells us that they gathered together with wives and little ones, kneeled down to pray to see Paul off. Tells you when he got back from missionary um, missions uh, trip, he gathered the whole church together. Like 
all the fine details with wives and little, all the details were there, and not one single reference to the church picnic. A fun and games day. So, you know, we're going to make a look. No. All I would entreat based on that, brethren, is that we focus on the word of God and keep those things in their due proportion. Keep them in their due proportion. We are about the kingdom of God. And it is known that you can't be on high alert all the time. Even the armies. They'll, they'll, they'll fly in uh, comedians onto battleships as morale boosters for the troops. Recreation is a thing. Isaac sported with his wife. For years, my little children thought that meant playing volleyball. There, there are those things. The, one of the blessings of the New Jerusalem is put in a picture form. The streets shall be full of children playing. These are things. I, I'm not anti all of those things. I'm a human being. But what I would submit is that in, in Western Christianity, these things are way out of proportion. And let us focus on the things that the church is supposed to focus on and keep those things in their proper place. Um, I would put it this way. We need to have each other's hearts. And some who are more sensitive to the emotional needs of brethren might want to say, you know, things have been intense for a while. We need a bit of a morale booster. We want to have each other's hearts. And those that are more old and sober would do well to listen to those kinds of... So we're balanced. But I would entreat that we could all also have our ears attuned to admonitions that... We are engaged in a spiritual war and we need to get with it. And let's have each other's hearts, let's have each other's ears on those things. Is that witness, brethren? With reason, with the word? It doesn't sound very convincing. All right, let's go think about it anyway. I entreat to think about it. Um, what it suggests is that families... And um, remember that one of the blessings of God is he setteth the solitary in families. So families would include people without families. Would have in proportion um, more lighthearted times as needed. But the focus of life is serving the Lord. And, uh, and if the church would do that occasionally, it would be occasional. Because we need to be. Uh, we desperately want to avoid church being a glorified social club, which is a huge proportion of North American Christianity. We're nearly out of time here, pretty well. We did start a bit late. That was perhaps my fault. Um, we had talked about spiritual gifts. We spent a bit of time on that. And really, we identified several and how that works. We're already seeking to um, be a worshiping people. God brings forth spiritual gifts in people. A 
according to his will. So our first line is to be worshipers. Be filled with the Spirit and um, earnestly seeking that we may edify the church. But we haven't got to come up with something. Right? We don't want to be faking something. I don't have anything to prophesy, but I'm supposed to prophesy, so thus says the Lord and just blurt out something. It's crazy. We don't want anything like that. Or the tongues people. Say the first thing that comes into your head, you know. Say banana backwards just to get yourself. We, we don't want anything to do with that, right? Amen? It's a little more convincing. But we do want God to be able to manifest himself. So we want to be prepared. We want to be seeking the Lord. We want to be a praying people. Loving one another. Loving the Lord. Sanctified, consecrated. And open to move when God moves us. Right? Whether that is in outpouring our hearts. And here, call to action. Let's see. Let's see here. Seek to edify. So we've had... um, Uh, search the scripture about the Lord's Supper. It's a call to action. Uh, Change of life, lifestyle, attitude, and approach to church meeting. So that we are consecrated, we are prepared. Brethren, I can tell you, (laughs) um, it's been, I'm thinking of times in my deepest need, when I have been crying out to God, God has met me in church meeting, regardless of the church. We were visiting. We were visiting a, a, a Calvinist church. Why do I say it's Calvinist? Um, I'm not sure if it might have been Presbyterian. Because they were, they, were, they were christening an infant. It's an infant baptism church. And God gave that preacher the word that I needed. and Lifted me. I've had that experience of God speaking exactly to my need. In a Christian Missionary Alliance church, in a fundamentalist Baptist church, as a visitor in a Presbyterian church where they were baptizing an infant, you can change church meeting by your prayers. At the very least, God will meet you if you will seek him earnestly. Of course, in the fellowships as well where I saved, God spoke to me, saved my life through the, uh, the word of God in their members there. And so, uh, this I submit, if he will do that when we are in deep need just to be pulled out and to be, to, to be able to stand again, how much more if we want to go on? He that spared not his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? And so I would submit that the way forward is the way we started, with all our heart, single-minded, seeking the Lord. And I know in my case, this requires a change of life and lifestyle, attitude and approach to church meeting, which is where uh, we want to see God manifest himself increasingly. So searching about the Lord's Supper, change of attitude towards the Lord's uh, table. Uh, sorry, change of attitude uh, or pr- do preparation, biblical preparation for church meeting. Lord's Supper... Preparation for church meeting. Seek to edify the church and come ready to do so. To be used of God in whatever capacity he chooses according to who he's made you to be. And that can from how you greet and inquire of someone's well-being. That can edify. To 
pouring out your heart in praise and thanksgiving to preaching and prophesying. You all may prophesy one by one. So no one should be cooking up a prophecy, but everyone should be seeking to edify. And that, remember, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name is noted of Jesus. Peter, God used Peter to raise the dead. But the Lord Jesus said, Whosoever giveth cup of cold water, or do you just even a cup of water? Cup of water, not lukewarm, that's going to get spat out. And only in the name of a disciple shall be rewarded. So, brethren, all of us can edify. It doesn't involve, doesn't have to involve standing here. And let every one of us come with a heart to edify. So whether it's how you greet someone and inquire of their well-being, which is, you know, you could feel like nobody loves you. And somebody dispels that with a loving greeting. Right? Those are just, and that can free that other person up to be more participatory. So seek to edify the church. Come ready to do so. Come ready to be used of God in whatever capacity he chooses from how you greet and inquire of someone's well-being to pouring out your heart in praise and thanksgiving to preaching and prophesying. So that's call to action. And the last one I have, so I've got four, and I've actually jumbled the order. Leadership in our homes. So, So this is men. But if you're single, then this is you. It took me, well, I appreciate those who are more orderly and organized than me in getting their families to to meeting calm, unruffled, and early, 15 minutes early, ready to go. But, uh, and one brother here said the same thing re- recently. He said, I, it's better for me to come late with my family than to stress everybody out and still come late, just less late. So I get that, I get that. Leadership in our homes should be tender, not tyrannical. In whatever our capacity is, let us prepare our hearts thoroughly Um, Let's be loving, be as practically prepared, and as punctual as possible. Right? Because no one's judging one another, but we can each take that upon ourselves. So as leaders in our home, let us do what what we can, as tenderly as possible, to help everyone in our homes be prepared for meeting, and as punctual as possible. The Jews have the preparation, right? They don't just, <laughs> oh no, it's the Sabbath, everyone sit down, you know, turn off all the lights. They prepare for the Sabbath. And so start preparing for meeting on Saturday at least. Be, a, be as well rested as possible. I told you I have some changes to make when you come to meeting. Adjust, adjust your schedule, optional work. Optional social activities. If we want God to meet with us, we have to um, 
be serious, not just show up for meeting. Let us seek the Lord, right? So these are practical, practical changes here. I suppose um, these two are li- uh, linked in the, a change of lifestyle. That's what I'm talking about. But those of us that are husbands and fathers, we need to provide leadership. Tender, not tyrannical. Right? And I'm, I'm examining myself in these things. I know I'm speaking to myself. Um, we're coming to meet with God when we assemble. It's not thrown together at the last minute. It's a focal point. Yes, we want to walk with him every day, of course, every hour of every day. And I have changes to make there as well. Uh, get everything out of my life that's not... I'm not talking about sin now, you understand. I'm talking about things that I don't need to be doing. Um, so there's that, walking with him every hour. Lord, let's do this activity together at your bidding, whatever it is. Homeschooling my children. Milling a log for a client. Fixing the mistake I made while milling the log for a client. Let's do it together, Lord. Um, <clears throat> but preparing to assemble with God's people. And giving guidance, right? One that ruleth well his own household. So ruling well our households so that we assemble ourselves uh, as we ought to the Lord. These are calls to action. We've had several weeks going over what the assembly is. There are things the Corinthians came behind in no gift. We are behind them by some distance in a number of gifts that would be really beneficial. If we want God to change that, well, we have some changes to make. And... um, I believe that a church needs to be vibrant and dynamic. I need that. I, I believe that the church needs to be uh, that dyna, dyna, dynamism. Yeah, I think that is what that, the the dynamic qualities and the dynam, dynamism needs to come from the Holy Ghost, not from our cleverness. The vibrancy needs to come from the Holy Ghost within each one, and the manifest presence of God, and God's hand with us, that we might build up God's people. And win others to Christ. That if there come in one unbelieving, he's confronted with God in you of a truth. He either fall down on his face or flee for his life. Uh, and it requires, as we've seen in Scripture, uh, us as God's people to be consistently consecrated, earnest, seeking the Lord, and coming together, assembling unto him. So that would conclude my presentation on these things. I realize there's lots more to be said on the subject of the assembly, and it could have been better said, but I think there's enough here that we've looked at in the Word of God to to benefit us all. Amen? Any comments, questions, corrections, contributions on that? Commitments? How about each one in their heart? Is, is there anybody here that could say, yes, I, Lord, I have some things to change and I'm going to change them? I do. And brethren, I say this, let us never guilt one another. Right? 
Let us just always assume the best of each other and inquire tenderly if we need, how are you doing? But you know what I mean? There's not this, hmm. Why weren't you on time, brother? Let's not do that. Let's not have an atmosphere like that at all. But let us, um, let us be winsome. Let us be um, uh, fires that ignite each other with love for Christ and for one another. And uh, together win the prize, even Christ manifest in the midst. Which brother will stand and pray? Brother Anthony, can I pick on you for that?